In most disaster movies, the opening scenes are spent establishing characters and showing them going around in their regular lives. And then there's some catastrophe that changes the whole world around them. Usually the disaster doesn't come without warning. Instead, the characters have been warned, but at least some of them shrug off the suggestions that something might go wrong and proceed as if there's no danger at all. By the end of the runtime, uh, there's been a lot of death and destruction. Usually our main characters are mostly alive, but nothing will ever be the same. And we've come to a great disaster in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, probably the second worst disaster in all of human history, the first being when human beings killed God the Son. But this is the second greatest disaster that kicked everything off. When we left off, things were great. Everyone was happy. But once our passage comes to a close, everything will have been changed. Man's relationship to the Lord God, uh, man's relationship to woman and woman to man, human relationships to the world around us, our very biology will have been changed, the course of human history, everything is dramatically changed for the worse. As the story unfolds, we'll watch a small cast of characters. There's Adam and Eve, the serpent, and the Lord God. And as we look at the heart and the behavior of each of them, we'll be able to learn something about each of their natures. And knowing more about these natures will assist us as we live in this world that has been so changed uh, so dramatically by sin. So let's begin in verse one. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Even if you weren't raised in the church, you probably associate this serpent with the devil. Why is that? It doesn't say that in Genesis. It's because we're told in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 that the serpent of old who deceived the whole world is the devil. We're also told in Ezekiel chapter 28 that the devil was in the garden of God. At the same time, we see here that he is described as a wild animal. And so it would seem that this was a real animal being possessed by Satan so he could come and try to con Eve and, and deceive her uh, about all of this stuff. And uh, we would note in passing, just reading this plainly, Eve had no problem with a talking snake. And so we have to perhaps come to the conclusion that uh, human beings were able to communicate with a common language with at least some of the animals. That seems likely, which I'm looking forward to because so many things are going to be put back to the Edenic state in the millennium. And I think it's altogether very possible that we'll be conversing with animals in the kingdom. We're told that he was the most cunning of creatures. Your version may say subtle or crafty. Derek Kidner calls it malevolent brilliance. Another resource describes it this way, willing to do anything. And already we are learning something very important about the nature of our enemy, the devil. The devil wasn't only Adam and Eve's enemy, he's also your enemy and my enemy as well. And though he himself individually probably isn't going to busy himself with my particular life, maybe, but probably not. He's got bigger fish to fry. He does have a legion of angels who serve him, and we're told that those who are not believers are held captive to do his will. And so we have an enemy, he, uh, just like Adam and Eve had an enemy, and he's going to come at us the same way he came at them. And so what we learn here is that he is willing to do anything to destroy your life to destroy your testimony, to destroy your relationships, both with God and other people. 
His victory in the garden was only the beginning of his long career. The devil's no one-hit wonder. He's got a lot of hits under his belt, a lot of top 40 uh, songs that he's been singing for uh, thousands of years now. He still spends his time, we're told, prowling around looking for someone he can devour. But why, oh, why would God allow him to hang out in the garden? Isn't that a dangerous, unfair thing to do? Why would God let him in there? We've touched on this before in our other studies, but what God was looking for with human beings was a loving, personal, true relationship with man and woman. Such a relationship would have to be based on free and genuine choice for those people to love God back. And also, as Dr. J. Vernon McGee points out, at this point in time, Adam and Eve were innocent, but they were not righteous. There's a big difference between innocent and righteous. To be righteous, you have to prove that you would obey, that you would do what you've been asked to do by God. Their obedience, therefore, would have to be put to a test through temptation. But of course, God does not tempt anyone. We're told that specifically in the book of James. And so, because of all of these pieces in play, God allowed the devil to come and have this talk with Eve, offering her door number two, as it were. He asked her a very simple question, did God really say? We can find many parallels between this moment and the temptation of Jesus in his 40 days in the gospels there. In both situations, Satan attacks the word of God. That is his nature. He has been doing it from the beginning. He's still doing it today, using his influence and his followers to attack the word of God. And what we'll find is that Eve's very first error is that she does not have a firm grasp on what God has actually said. And it makes a big difference. Listen, God's word matters. And what it says matters and how it says it matters. God's word, the scriptures are very specific and it has been given to us so that we might be shielded and strengthened and know the difference between truth and lie. It's been given to us as it is, not so that we can reinterpret it according to our own culture or according to you know, changing human norms, but this is the word of God once for all delivered to mankind so that we can know the difference between truth and lie. And as Christians and as a church, we must always keep the study and the application of God's word primary. At Calvary Hanford in the Calvary Chapel tradition, this is one of our big things that we, we believe in the, the primacy and the importance of teaching systematically through the Bible so that we can know what God has said in its entirety and that we don't just do that on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, but that hopefully those of us who call Calvary home, that we are going home individually and as families and that we are also eating the word of God and taking it in and, and writing it on our hearts and filling our minds with it so that we can be shielded and prepared for what lies ahead. Verse two says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. We learn a few things about human nature from Eve. First of all, some scholars believe the language indicates that she actually interrupted the serpent and while he was mid-sentence. Certainly, she doesn't take time to weigh or, or prepare her response. She immediately jumps in uh, with this response. And, and what we kind of find and are reminded of is the fact that humans by nature are somewhat hasty when it comes to spiritual things. 
We're prone to knee-jerk reactions before pausing and reflecting and reviewing what's going on and what God has really said and verifying that according to Scripture. Second, we see that Eve underestimates both the generosity of God and his judgment against sin. In the previous passage, the Lord had used very strong language to warn Adam about death. And Hebrew scholars will indicate that Eve strips away some of the urgency, some of the sharpness, some of its seriousness in the way that she talks about death. We also see a subtle difference between what God said about eating and what Eve reports to the, servant, uh, to the serpent. God had said, here's my command to you. Eat freely of any of the trees as much as you want. And what we see here is that Eve has sort of shrunk that idea down in her mind to more of a, well, you may eat, I suppose, if you absolutely have to grab an apple off a tree. I guess that's okay. One resource points out that Eve has removed the idea that she and Adam could eat any time to their heart's content. And instead, it's as if God sort of made a concession and said, well, I suppose it would be all right if you had a piece of fruit or two here and there. But that's not at all what God had done. You see, it's human nature for us to think of God as miserly and withholding and sort of mean-spirited. But it isn't true. It's not true even a little bit. We've seen in the, our previous studies just how extravagantly generous God is toward us because that is his nature. Out of the abundance of his care and his love and his passion for us, he is always overabundant, lavish, lavish and generous toward us. God only wants what is best for you. That is true. We may not feel that sometimes, or we may have different opinions about what God should have done. Those are different discussions altogether, but the Bible reveals that God wants what is best for you. He wants what's best for your life, best for your future, best for your relationships. Our human desires and our human nature doesn't always line up with what God wants. And in that case, we need to submit to what God has planned for us and what God has provided for us. But we have to drive this home in our minds and in our hearts. God wants what is best for me. He is not withholding anything from me. He is not miserly. He is not a cheapskate when it comes to his love for us or his provision for us. Third, we see that Eve adds a restriction to what God had said. She said, he said, you must not touch it. Listen, God had never said that. So where did this idea come from? Was Eve exaggerating? Maybe. Had Adam placed this, uh, told Eve this, and, and made it sort of as a safeguard, right, to keep them away from sin? Some people think that's what was going on. We don't know. But either way, we'll find that this extra layer of legalism probably backfired and contributed to their defeat in the situation rather than keeping them spiritually safe. We'll see that in just a moment. Robert Bergen writes, the sad truth is that when people add to the word of God, they create confusion and trouble. And it's been happening for thousands of years and it still happens today. We do not need to add to God's word. It is complete. It is all that we need for life and for godliness. And we need to pay attention to what God has truly said and not add our own things to it. Verse four, no, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he begins pretty subtle, but now the serpent is just outright lying. And the devil has been a liar all along from the beginning. That's his nature. 
and we see that he's all about jealousy. That's what had caused all his trouble in, in the, at the beginning, and it led to his own ruin. He had said he was like the highest created angel, we think, from some of the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that reference him. And he was probably uh, in charge of heavenly worship, among other things. And he's, he got very impressed with himself, and he said, okay, I'm going to set my throne above the, the hosts of heaven, and I will be like God. I'm going to ascend high, and, I, and I'll put myself in that place. He was jealous of God and wanted to attain to that height, and so he was cast down, and it led to his ruin. Now, we notice here, he, he recognizes how well that jealousy worked in his own heart, if the devil has a heart, and, and so he uses the same bait with Eve. Now, Eve was innocent, but she wasn't stupid. Had she thought through this for a moment, she might have asked, wait a minute, if God is so afraid of us becoming like him, if he's so worried about us being like him, then why did he put this tree in the garden in the first place? Had she just paused and reflected for a moment about what this serpent is saying and what she knows to be true, she would have been able to start seeing some of these inconsistencies in the temptation. She's being deceived, but another word for deceived is simply misled, right? She's allowing herself to be led away from God's path and onto another path. We have to come to the conclusion that there is a absolute willingness in her heart to be misled. And after all, we'll find that she wants the fruit. It's beautiful to look at. It's very enticing and appealing to her. She has a tiny whisper in her heart that's saying, God doesn't want you to be happy. God is, is kind of withholding. God isn't all the way to be trusted. We can see that in the way that she's answered the serpent already. And so she allows the serpent to deceive her and to lead her astray into disaster. It's interesting, he offered a way that they might open their eyes, right? But let's remember what God had already said to Adam and Eve in their commission. Remember how he had invited them in chapter one. He said, behold, look, in chapter one. He said, come look and come and see all the stuff that I made for you and all the plans that I have for you. And it's gonna be so great. We saw that excitement that God had as he revealed this creation that he had created specifically so that he might have a, a special interaction with human beings. And he, he said, behold, look right? And he had given them this wonderful commission to do what? To watch over the garden. And so their eyes were open in every good way to every good thing. God had given them vision. God had given them life. God had given them everything they needed to see and everything they needed to experience. No, he had not given them the horrors of evil and wickedness, but who would want that? Well, the devil wanted that for them. He knew what was going on, and he wanted to ruin them the way he had been ruined. Here's another thing about Satan's nature, and it's kind of a scary one, but we don't really need to be worried about it, we find as we go through the Bible, is that the devil is a student of God's word. He knows the scripture. How did he know what God had said? He had listened, and he had paid attention. Look at his conversations with Jesus during the 40 days of the wilderness temptation in the Gospels. Satan knows the scripture. It doesn't seem he understands all of it. Otherwise, he wouldn't do things like get the Son of God crucified, you know? <laughs> he would have probably tried to avoid that. Rather than try to kill the baby Jesus, he probably would have tried to protect the baby Jesus and keep him from dying. But it doesn't seem like he understands all of it. And of course, he doesn't obey it. But he's all about taking the Word of God and perverting it and using it in ways that will devour lives. 
Look at the false teachings that have crept into the church for over 2,000 years. Look at the cults. So many of them, they start with the Bible and then they just pervert it. They add to it. They, they adjust it. They, they mangle it up and, and put these horrible, life-destroying bondages on people. That's the devil. We need to be equipped with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's word in order to avoid these dangers. And we need to be careful in our study of God's word so that we can help people who have fallen into some of these traps. Verse six, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This isn't just about a piece of fruit. It's about whether they were going to trust God or not. Here, through their choice, they are saying, okay, we don't need God's provision. We don't need God's opinion. And we don't need God to get wisdom. We can get wisdom and from another source. This is a big choice that they're making. Now, here's where I think their legalism backfired. Because remember, she had said, well, God told us if we touch it, we will die. But then inevitably... She gave into this temptation and what would she do? She would reach out and grab that fig and pull it down and she'd be holding it and nothing happened. I didn't die. Well, God must not have been telling me the truth. No, 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 you, that was all made up, right? You added the provision about touching, but as she's being deceived and as she's being misled, that extra thing she had ascribed to God, that extra command seemed to be untrue and they had made it up. That's why it was untrue. But in a sense, I think it would have emboldened them to, okay, take a bite. If it's not true about me touching it, well, why don't I take a bite? Maybe that wasn't true either. Now we get a bombshell here. Adam was there by Eve's side the whole time. Why wasn't he protecting his wife? Why wasn't he intervening? We don't know. Actually, it's worse than that. It seems that maybe he was allowing his wife to be the guinea pig here the royal food taster, as some of the commentators point out. And she's like, hey, I got this fruit. Yeah, why don't you try it? I want to see if you drop dead. They're together. She eats first. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I can eat it too because you're not dead. And so, man, this is just so sad. It reveals to us that, that part of our human nature that we are deeply selfish people. Both Adam and Eve are acting in deeply selfish ways. God had designed them to live in total harmony and mutual dependence in a beautiful way where they would complete one another and support one another and help one another. But now we see they have their own desires in mind, their own sort of self-importance in mind, and they're doing things at the expense of their spouse. And that's really sad. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Seeing these crude cover-ups would have been silly if it weren't so tragic. Have you ever had a small child try to clean up a really big mess that they made? It's hilarious. And then, you're, and then you realize, oh no, that means I have to clean this up. As the kids are like, they have like the, the dirty laundry they're using to clean up the spilled milk and everything is just getting worse and worse and worse, right? That's what's happening here. Adam and Eve felt the guilt of their sin and immediately they tried to cover it. But notice what they did. They covered part of their bodies. They didn't cover their hearts. They couldn't do that. But this is human nature. We feel guilty for the sin inside. Why? Because God's moral law has been written on the heart of every human being. 
And so humans then go out and they create all sorts of arbitrary coverings in an effort to dress up their guilt and make it try to go away. All the human religion, all of the human effort, it is all just as worthless in reconciling a person to God as Adam and Eve putting a few leaves over their swimsuit areas. That's, that's it's silliness. All the complexity of human religion, all of the effort of the most, you know, supposedly religious person or spiritual person who is not in Christ, it's the exact same as saying, here's what will fix this. I'll put some leaves on. And uh, it's a sad thing, but that is what humans love to do. Verse eight, and the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And so now immediately the Lord comes on the scene. Of course, he had seen everything that was happening, not just the eating, but he saw into their hearts. He knew every thought. He knew every emotion. He knew every aspect of what was going on. He had been betrayed. He had been defied. His perfect creation had been completely spoiled because of this rebellion. In response, what did God do? He would have been justified in just burning the whole thing up and just letting go of that atomic glue that we talk about in science today and just letting the whole thing burn up. And, and he would have been justified. And he didn't do that. Instead, he immediately came down to be with his people, to intervene positively toward them. He seeks them out, calling out to them in kindness. Listen, God's nature is compassionate love, gentleness, and mercy. That's his nature. And he doesn't change. Yes, he must pour out wrath on sin, but his desire for human beings is always reconciliation and restoration. That's been his way from the beginning. We see it here. Why bother with this conversation with Adam and Eve and all? Why bother asking them questions he already knows the answers to? It's because he is acting in tenderness and giving them a chance to repent of what they've done. So let's see what they do. Verse 10. He's, Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Notice as God speaks with Adam and Eve, he'll give them all the space they need to say they're sorry, to fall on his mercy, to ask for forgiveness, but they won't. He's asking them questions he knows the answer to. He, he's hanging out there and, and, in a sense, immediately forestalling the judgment that they deserve. He's trying to give them a chance to, to, to repent and ask for mercy and to ask for forgiveness, and they just won't. Instead, Adam says, I was afraid of you. Now, remember what the serpent had promised? He said, oh, your eyes will be open. And in a sense, they were. They were open to wickedness. They were open to evil and to ruin. But what happened after they ate the fruit? Adam's in the dark suddenly. He doesn't know what is going to happen. He hears God has come down and he says, uh-oh, we, we weren't poisoned by the fruit in the sense that we dropped over dead, but maybe God is going to kill us because we've eaten this. I don't know what's gonna happen. Let's hide from God. One commentator suggests that Adam thinks he's going to be executed by the Lord right now, and that's why he's afraid. Verse 11, and then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And so look at the heart of God. He's so patient. He's so gracious. Adam hasn't repented, but God is trying to lead him there. He said, oh, okay, what are you doing? I, I, I hid, I'm afraid from you. Okay, um, did you do that thing that I didn't want you to do? 
Do you have anything you want to say? You parents understand this. Do you have anything you want to say about punching your brother in the face? And you're just like, just, just say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. Still probably going to be consequences, but please just say you're sorry. This is what God is doing. Verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. And so rather than repent and ask God for mercy, Adam just shifts the blame first to his wife and then to God himself. It's the lady's fault. Hey, by the way, you're the one that brought her here anyway. I was perfectly happy being a bachelor. And then this lady came and ruined everything. That's effectively what he's saying. Our nature is to blame shift to blame someone else, to blame God himself for the things that have gone wrong in the world, things that have gone wrong in our lives when we are the ones responsible. It's our nature to excuse ourselves and try to wriggle out of our own responsibility for sin. Verse 13, so the Lord God asked the woman. This is still amazing, amazing patience. He says, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you don't want to repent. You're being a jerk to your wife and to me, and you're not owning it. Okay, we'll just, we'll still wait. Let's turn and talk to Eve for a minute. Hey, what have you done? He said to Eve. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so Eve also tries to pass responsibility off to someone else. But we see God's nature here. He's not only patient and tender, he is also firm in the truth. Notice what he's emphasizing as he talks with them. What have you done? He doesn't say, what did your husband do? What did your wife do? What did the serpent do? He says, what did you do? Did you eat from from the tree? What have you done? When we sin... It's not someone else's fault. It's not society's fault. It's not because you had no other choice. Your actions are your responsibility before God. Now, God wants to help you in that mess, but first you have to own it and admit it that yes, I am a sinner. I have sinned before a holy God and I need forgiveness. God's ready to forgive. He's ready to save. He's ready to deal with the destruction in your life and the mess that you've made. But you have to say, yes, I agree, Lord, that I did what you asked me not to do. Now come the consequences. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Immediately, we find that God's massive plan of redemption was put into motion. Why not just erase these two people or just kill them on the spot and the serpent for that matter and just start over again? That's not how God does things. This is, in my opinion, a subtle blow to the gap theory because the idea was some stuff happened, it went bad, so God just erased everything. Oh, why wouldn't he have done that just again? He doesn't. Because God loved Adam and Eve so much, he was unwilling to consign them to eternal damnation. He wanted to save them. He actually wanted to save these two people. And as the Bible reveals, there's only one way that a person can be saved, whether it's Adam or Eve or you or me. And that's for God himself to come to earth, put on flesh, live a perfect life, pay the penalty for our sin, and then give human beings the free choice whether we will accept him as substitute and savior or not accept it. That's the deal. And all of that takes an immense amount of time and effort and providence and all sorts of things. 
But in God's mind, Adam and Eve were worth all the trouble. And you know what? You are worth the trouble as well. And that neighbor who just won't do the right thing is, is worth the trouble as well. All of the people of this earth are worth the trouble because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There weren't only consequences for Satan, of course. Humankind would have to lie in the beds they made, all of creation, in fact. Verse 16, God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. And you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. This isn't God being vindictive. This is simply what Adam brought into the world. The Net Bible translates God's curse in verse 17 this way, using idiomatic language from Hebrew. It says, cursed is the ground thanks to you. And uh, man, that's a true statement. God had tried to warn them. He had provided every single thing they could possibly need or want for a perfectly fulfilled life. And instead, they actively chose poison and death. Even still, we see God's grace. Because of sin, Adam and Eve died spiritually immediately. They were separated from God in their communion with him. They would have died eternally if God didn't set into motion a plan for salvation and made a wave of escape for them. They deserved to die physically, suddenly, sudden execution. And yet God instead allowed them to live for hundreds and hundreds of years before they returned to the dust. And though they faced a now hostile environment, God's very next action was to help them be protected from the, the cat, uh, catastrophic world they instituted for themselves. Look at verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. So we see that there has been some level of reconciliation between God and man not to the level that they were before the fall. But what do we see here? We see that Adam believes God and he's paying attention now to what God has said. That's why he chose this name for his wife. Okay, Eve is gonna be the the life giver. The savior's coming from her. And so we see Adam orienting his thoughts and his actions to, okay, what has God said? And now how can I align my life with that? And we see that then immediately after that, God brings his people in close and he says, okay, that's done. Now let's, let's take these stupid leaves off. This is dumb, you guys. Take the leaves off. These do nothing. These aren't gonna help you. And I'm gonna give you better clothes, clothes that actually fit properly, ones that will help you stay warm and protected. These aren't gonna hinder you. Of course, for these clothes, an animal had to die. And so God was establishing from the beginning the truth of how atonement, how covering for sin is accomplished. It is accomplished one way through the death of a substitute. And so we assume that this animal was a lamb. We can't know for sure, but seems to make sense. Verse 22, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life 
eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is actually another act of God's, of God's grace on God's part. For them to eat of the tree of life in this condition would trap them forever in an unredeemed state. And the Lord doesn't want that. He says, hey, I I don't want these people to stay stuck in the state that they're in. I want to redeem them and reconcile them. And to do that, they're going to have to go through death so that they can ultimately be forever with me because of the work I will accomplish through my son, the Savior. And so the Lord drives them out of the garden and he stations these fearsome angels there to block them from re-entering. Cherubim, by the way, are not little fat babies, not even a little bit. Cherubim, they're super gross when we see, <laughs> when we see descriptions of them in the Bible. Gross isn't a good word. They're freaky looking. Anytime they're described in the Bible, they would look to us or to you know people like Ezekiel who saw them. They look like part human, part animal. They usually have wings. They usually have two or four faces. Some of them are animal. Some of them are human. Uh, so they're unpleasant when we see them imaged in the Bible, and they are super fierce and have a lot of power. So in this text, we see our enemy's nature is to lie and to ruin and to attack God's word and to be on the prowl for human beings. He's still the same. Satan's nature doesn't change. God's nature is to come with grace and compassion and to intervene in our lives and to busy himself reaching out with love and grace towards humanity, even though we are absolutely guilty of rebellion. We are even more guilty of rebellion than Adam and Eve were in a sense. And God does not change. We see the tenderness and the care and the compassion that he had for Adam and Eve. He has that same level of love and compassion and and personal tenderness for you and for me. Our nature is to focus on wrong things and to stray from God and then try to avoid personal responsibility and to put barriers between us and God and to throw our, you know, uh, other humans around us under the bus. So that's our nature. Now, of the characters, God, the serpent, and the humans, only one of those, only, only the humans get to have a new nature. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Satan doesn't change. He's not going to one day realize, I really shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. He's the same. We, on the other hand, if we become Christians, what happens? We are given a new nature. We are made into new creations. And so when we are tempted, because this passage is also a passage about temptation and what to do about it, because temptation still happens. It wasn't only for Adam and Eve. So when we're tempted, is it hopeless? It was hopeless for Adam and Eve? No, not at all. As Christians, we're given a new nature provided by God like a garment to help us navigate this world with all of its pressures and temptations. Paul tells us as Christians, both in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, he says, put on your new nature, put on that clothing that God has provided. And he says, do so so that we can be like God and so we can be renewed according to the image of our creator. And so temptation is still going to come into your life, and that's okay. The devil's not done doing his nasty work. When temptation comes, we can learn from this scene about how to overcome. First, always remember that God is not withholding any good thing from you, nor does he tempt you to sin. Our enemy is doing that. And when the enemy does that, he is lying. He may have arguments and shiny bait, but it is a lie because he is a liar. And we have to tell ourselves that. 
One quick example. Today, some secular psychologists and marriage counselors suggest that having an open marriage where you go out and explore romantic liaisons with people who aren't your spouse will actually help your marriage. I read this horrifying article in Psychology Today where a college professor, a PhD in psychology, wrote about various studies being done in this terrible, sinful field. His conclusion was that, well, more research is needed, but this seems to be a positive thing. And he suggests if you do this, this will increase your trust in your communication and lower the levels of jealousy between you and your spouse. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's just the serpent coming along and saying, you won't certainly die. Just go for it. Just go, go, go. And so it's a lie. God is not withholding anything from you by saying like, hey, be faithful to your spouse. He's not doing that at all. Now, here's what Adam and Eve should have remembered as we close. First, that God is good and only wants what's good for you. Second, that they had power over the serpent. He was under their dominion. They were the boss of this serpent in this interaction. Now, what about us? When temptation comes around, remember this truth from the Bible. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you noticed something here? Satan did not make them do anything. He did not threaten them. He didn't start biting them. He didn't push fruit down their throats. He didn't force them to do anything. He couldn't. God wouldn't allow him to do that. He gave the option. And had they just said, get out of here, we're the boss of you, the serpent would have had to slither away. And the same is true about us. The devil cannot make us sin or give in to temptation God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, and he will provide for you the way out. That is a promise from the scripture, and so resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And finally, when we do sin, Adam and Eve sin, we all sin, we're all going to sin at some point, we still do, right? Remember this, there's nothing you can do to cover what you've done before an all-knowing holy God, but you don't need to cover it. He has done the covering. Your part is to repent, to agree with God and say, I did what was wrong, make me right, cleanse me and, and lead me back into your way. That's what God wants. But remember, repentance is an act of the will. It is a choice that we make. Just like the choice to sin is an act of the will, so too is the choice to repent. It's what we must do to avoid the catastrophe and the disasters of sin. And when we do, God is ready to take us into the safety of his love and his provision and make right what we have done wrong. Amen?